The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. By Woodard and Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operation services. By Interra, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. And by Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. This is Session 210. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. I hope everyone is well and thank you for tuning in during this time when there are so many big issues facing the world. Again, the war in Ukraine is the chief uh, issue that we're seeing out there. I hope you are all staying safe. Well, we have a great treat for you today. Katrina Donaghy, founder of Civic Ledger and Water Ledger, is here to talk blockchain and how it can be used in the water sector. It's a fascinating interview. You're going to love Katrina. Uh, speaking with her was real eye, a real eye-opening experience for me, and I'm sure it will be for you as well. Uh, well, we always begin with a hearty thank you to our sponsors. Again, the sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for the 2022 season include Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard and Curran, Interra, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, and Black and Veatch. What a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry thought leadership and education. Thank you all. If you could, please do me a favor. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at that sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know how you appreciate uh, their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on would be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And while you're at it, please make sure you're a subscriber to the podcast. Now it's on to our featured guest, Katrina Donaghy. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Katrina, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you on. How are you doing today? Thank you, Dave. I'm very well indeed. Thank you. Good. I, I feel like you're already a day ahead of me, which I think uh, you actually are. We're, you're, I am. I'm in. Yep. You're, you're, uh, it, it is. We're recording this on a Wednesday. And well, at least for me, it's Wednesday. For you, it's Thursday. So uh, I expect you to know everything, every question I'm going to ask because you're in the future. Um, I am. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, so it's my I'm morning here. So yes, it is. Yeah. It is. So, so you're fortunate you've had coffee. Um, so Katrina, for those who uh, may not know who you are off the top of their heads, can you give us a little about your background and how you got into the water space? Sure. So thank you, Dave. Um, 
My background is um, one of the first things that I did when I left school is I went to university and I did a humanities degree. So I'm sort of a sociologist, political scientist. I ended up um, having a career in government for about 25 years. And interesting enough, I started to work in the natural disaster space, flooding. And anyone who knows Australia, Australia is a very complex country. We have droughts, we have floods, we have everything in between. Um, and I started working with local governments around disaster risk management, but it was always associated with water. But even before I started my journey in my career, I was born in New Zealand. And like a lot of New Zealanders, we all come to Australia. And I was born in a, in a place called Whanganui or Whanganui. And Whanganui is one of the first uh, places on the planet where they very associated a personhood to their river to give it a legal right. So you could say right back from the moment I was born in New Zealand, water was something that was part of my DNA. And when I came to Australia and started my career, I found myself working at Brisbane City Council in the flood management team. And we were in drought. We were in the millennial drought, which was the biggest drought of, of, our, of our century in Australia, and we were preparing for a flood. And we almost ran out of water as a, as a, as a city. And... Um, we knew that a flood would break, break the drought with the floods. We got ready for that, and it did. And in January 2011, our flood event happened. Um, we were ready. We got our PMF, all of that sort of stuff, and we saw our city flood once again. Um, and then I helped the city recover by going through the recovery events and all that sort of stuff. And then I moved to the Queensland Urban Utilities, where I was part of a team in 2012 looking at an urban utility of a future. And that was in 2012 when we were looking at decentralisation. How do we actually reimagine utilities of the future? Are looking at different ways of solving problems around treatment, wastewater treatment, recycled water, circular water. But we were very early, very early. And the engineering, the engineering side of the organisation was still very dominant. So that team got abandoned. And um, I found myself in another role, which led me to discovering a technology that finally enabled me to start solving some of those problems that I could see during my career around data. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's fascinating. Uh, you were in the utility of the future. There's been a lot of talk about utilities of the future. I know that's not the main thing we're here to speak on, mm. but can you can you kind of frame up what what when you looked at utility of the future what were you what were you seeing out there oh nature-based solutions yeah so we knew that nature-based solutions were something that the that um utilities need to consider about smart metering like data this is way back in 2012 and it was really difficult because data wasn't seen as an important thing. It was seen as a liability and something that was over there, but we didn't really know what it was because it was all about public health. How do we protect public health by ensuring that our water is treated to A grade before it's discharged into a, into a creek or a river system? So it was all about risk, 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 not about how do we actually empower customers to have a different relationship with water and a different relationship with the utility. And, and you could see way back then that it was silly to be spending millions of dollars on centralised assets and, and, and going to waste wastewater treatment where you'd need to get it to A grade or B before discharging it to the river system when you had 
licenses to discharge from industry that were polluting the river. Um, so we now know that utilities have met the diminished returns about 10 years ago, and now they need to move to different ways of thinking around solving the problems of sediment and nutrients and things like that in our water systems. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the nature-based solution is a decentralized system. That's kind of what you mm. pointed to that you've mm. kind of, so, you know, that you quote unquote found. So what did you find? Well, we found that decentralization was, was a very interesting thing. It lowered the cost, but it also enabled the consumer to choose what water type, because we put um, potable water in our toilets in, in Australia. We don't have a purple pipe. But there was so much discussion around how risky that was. So I remember being involved in writing policy around recycled water. And, you know, it would take months and months and months to get the organisation to agree on just words. And what, what, was, what do we define recycled water? How do we manage it? How do we treat it? And it was so risk-averse that there was no way that you could enable a consumer to make a decision about whether they wanted a purple pipe into their toilet system or, or portable, and it just didn't make sense. And also, in Australia, we don't have our water utilities not privatised. They're actually a statutory body under government. So local governments are largely shareholders in the water utility. And so because there's no private sector com competition, prices are set. So your revenue is set. So all of your prices and all that sort of stuff, and because we went through the millennial drought, people reduce their consumption of water. So utilities weren't hitting the, the revenue that they were getting <laughs> in the past. So but, but what it came down to really at the end of the day, it came down to data because data is generated through the, the CRM systems when the customer engages with someone on a call. Then you've got data that's sitting in the wastewater treatment plants. Then you've got data that's sitting in the financial, um, in the budgets and all the analysis and all the, you know, cost-benefit analysis we have to do. And all of this data is not able to be shared across the organisation, and it, oh, even laboratory data, so water quality data. So everything is, we're running blind because we don't know what data we have as an organisation and how we share it across the organisation to ensure we make better decisions. Well, that aside, I think sets us up perfectly for what you're doing now. So can you tell us what you're doing now and how all this I mean, it just seems like you've, you've set the stage perfectly. So what are you doing these days? Oh, um, <laughs> just, yeah, exactly. It was, it was, it's an interesting journey because, you know, in, in 2016, um, there was, a, I, I had a, I had some moments where I met some interesting people and I found this technology or well, this technology found me called blockchain. And for, for your re, for your listeners, they might be going, oh, no, not a story about blockchain. Don't want to hear it. <laughs> but hear me out. Hear me out. I'm not going to be talking about NFTs. Don't worry about it. This is not um, an ad for crypto. <laughs> no, this is definitely not. This is really about the utility of the technology. Um, so 2015, um, went down rabbit holes as we do back then. And because I came from government, I worked, you know, I was administering grant programs to local government around trying to get local governments to understand their disaster, their natural disaster risks. And I was always frustrated because I, we were issuing millions and millions and millions of dollars to local government for them to, to, to prepare their disaster response reports and plans. And in there was all of this data and it couldn't be shared with 
anybody. So I created an access database so I can actually put the data in. And we had a sister program in another department that was doing flood mitigation. We were doing disasters, they were doing flood mitigation, same sister program, unable to share the data across to this other government department, which was in Queensland. And we were spending millions of dollars of taxpayers' money on these programs and data was stuck in these silos. So it always bothered me because I saw that if we could share data, we could get better information to make better decisions in real time and lower the cost to the consumer or the citizen or the taxpayer because we became a lot more efficient. So this sort of bugged me for years. And then I um, was in my children's library in the suburbs of Brisbane and 2015, and I found a book about Bitcoin. And for and back then it was really early and I picked it up and I, you know, took it home and read it and read it quite a few times because it challenges your thinking. But it gave me a tool for the first time that I could use to solve this problem about interoperability of data across systems that don't actually work together. And that's when I got curious and that's when I decided to do a mind map of the planet and sort of work out who was doing what, who was the leaders, what were the thought leaders, what was being said about this technology. And this was really just about Bitcoin, blockchain, and, and obviously Bitcoin. And Ethereum was still early, but I found some amazing thought leaders and they weren't the people that you think they were. These were people who were political scientists, sociologists, economic, you know, people with economic backgrounds, and they were writing about the economics of blockchain. And to me, as a sociologist, I was like, this is heaven for me. And I found documents that I could read that started to put the dots together for me. And that's when um, I went to my first meetup. Meetups are amazing. I met Lucas, and Lucas was a developer, still is, and he had worked on a little MVP around digitising a fishing permit as benign as that but what was so special about it was that it was issued via the bitcoin blockchain so we had a ledger of a record to verify that this asset which is extremely valuable was issued by a government authority to the customer and the customer now had ownership of that in a digital wallet and it couldn't be stolen it couldn't be frauded and it meant that we reduced paperwork but we had a system of record to verify that that had been issued. Um, and we took that and took it to the Queensland government because I had some contacts in there. And um, we were engaged to do the very first proof of concept of issuing a permit on the blockchain. And we did it in six weeks. And we proved that we could actually take a government-issued asset that has value, that has rules, that's associated with the legislation, sits on a registry and issue it and show the history of that issuance. And that's when we founded Civic Ledger in 2016. So we didn't actually create a company then find a problem. We looked, we knew what the problems were, but we experimented and said maybe this technology could be really quite interesting to solve something that is plagues government globally yeah uh, so so before we jump into how blockchain is going to impact water can you explain 
what exactly blockchain is? Sure. What I'm going to do That's a is dangerous for your question. listeners. Yeah, because there's there's, a, there's there's always a way to go back and say it's it's a you know we'll we'll go and say the technical words first and then we'll talk about it from a from a different perspective. So so what I use these are really basic words and and one of the things about blockchain just as a forewarning is that it the tech the basics of the technology have been around for a long time. It's just the way that they were pulled together in the white paper in 2008 by Satoshi Nakamoto. So we sort of say blockchains are a digital technology that combines cryptographic, which we all know what cryptography is, data management, which is the way relational databases work, networking, so how computers are networked together, and incentive mechanisms, which is about um, keeping everyone honest to support the checking the execution and the recording of transactions between parties. Now, why is that important and why is this technology does this is because when you think about conventional centralised databases and platforms that are on-premises or on cloud, blockchains can reduce counterparty and operational risks by providing a neutral ground between transacting organisations. Now, this is really important, reducing counterparty and operational risks by providing a neutral ground between transactioning organisations. So we know that over time, because I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer and, you know, I'm a lot older, but organisations have been have taught themselves to be competitors. You know, they compete with each other. But the customers will move across organisations. But so data about those customers are held within those organisations and they won't be shared obviously for privacy. But there's certain data that needs to be shared across organisations so customers are having a better experience. So things like payments, escrow, notarization, registration and process coordination are the key functions what we see in day-to-day operations supporting customer service delivery when we think about what are utilities that's at the heart of how a utility works. Day-to-day operations that support customer service delivery. But there's data that are associated with those transactions that become quite important, but they get locked down in data silos. So what we see is that blockchain is enabling us to have a, a, a different business model that innovates organisations through providing the mechanism for data interoperability reducing the cost of establishing those business relationships and reducing the cost of the risk of those transactions. And this is why we always hear the word trust, 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 trust. Um, And this is why um, technology is, from my job, you know, from all the years working in government, is this is about a shared technology platform that has cryptography, consensus, databases and incentivized incentivization mechanisms all blended together. And the interesting thing about this technology, nobody owns it. Nobody owns the infrastructure. So when you think about Microsoft and IBM and SAP and all those guys, Facebook and Google, they own those systems. They own those, those, those infrastructure and they can change those infrastructure. They can change the data, the rules, whenever they want to. The protocols within the blockchain infrastructure 
cannot be changed unless there is a community consensus that they change. And that's why this technology is so different to centralised databases that are owned by people that are actually sitting at a centralised server that can be hacked because data in there is really quite important. So in this way, blockchains are decentralised, the nodes are distributed, um, and the data, the ledgers, hold the data on all of those nodes. So every time there's a new transaction added to that ledger, the ledgers agree. That means that nobody can take down the system. And that is what is so important, particularly when you want concepts of trust. How do I trust it? How do I know that nobody's going to take it, take that data out? Because once the data is in the blockchain, it's what we call immutable. So the data cannot be changed. But the beauty is, is that it's an append-only data system. That means that data can never be erased. So when we think about transactions such as water, water has a provenance and water moves between actors or organisations. How do we track that? How do we append its history to it? How do we actually understand how it moves and who's had it in the past? And this is what I get so excited about this technology. Yeah, but before we get into that, though, I, I do want to understand a little better. You know, everyone, I think people have a common notion that the data can be hacked. And you've made the argument that, hey, this is decentralized, all the computers have to agree. So the way, the way I've understood blockchain is it's incredibly difficult to hack because if you hack one computer that's that's noted into the blockchain, that's not going to do you any good because you're not going to have, you're, gonna, you're, you're not, you're not going to convince the other nodes because the data is no, not going to. You're not going to convince the other nodes. No. So if you've got 30,000 nodes that are holding the ledger on the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, you've got to take 51% of those nodes down. You've got to then take the ledgers back a couple of blocks and get everybody in the, in the, in the network to agree that that data is actually now this data. And, and that is a very difficult thing to do. It's very expensive to do because of the energy. And I know everyone says, oh, but the block lane is all about this energy. We all understand that. But if you think about how when you put all the data centres across the planet and join them all together and you ask how much does it cost to mine gold, how much does it cost to actually manage Google's databases and stuff like that, you've got to put things into perspective. But, yeah, you've got to create uh, a 51% attack on, on those nodes and, and then roll back the ledgers and then get everyone to agree. And that's really difficult to do. But I like to use the analogy of the internet. So when the internet was born and when it started to hit mainstream around 1992, do you remember what it was like? It was horrible. We had this incredible new thing, but we had dial-up. And do you remember what it was like to, to upload or download or, you know, it was this telephone line and as soon as somebody got on the telephone in the house, you know, you lost connection. So it was this really amazing conceptual thing called the internet, but its connections or its infrastructure was really poor. It had, it, it was just bad. So blockchain's very similar whereby we've, you know, it's now 13 years since the Bitcoin white paper. And you look now where the world is at with this tech and you go, well, you know, KPMG Canada yesterday came out and said now they're putting Bitcoin and Ethereum on their on their asset, on their balance sheet. But the infrastructure had to get built and it hasn't been done by 
Microsoft or IBM. It's done by the community of developers that have organised themselves over time to actually get to build this technology and, and, and enabling companies like me to come along and go, I can build a next generational company with this technology to solve a very, very difficult problem, i.e. valuing water. All right. So now we've, we've got the foundation laid for what uh, blockchain is. How does blockchain help the water sector? Well, lots of ways, lots of ways. Um, the first thing I like to talk about, and, and again, it's again, it's something that we all understand. It's called accounting. Um, people go, well, what's this got to do with blockchain and water? And you sort of go, well, if you really look at what a ledger does, a ledger holds a state, an asset, whether it's in credit, debit, it gives you an understanding of a company. How's it performing? What's its profit and loss look like? What's its balance sheet? So ledger is that. It holds a record. But this is triple entry accounting or triple entry bookkeeping, whereby I have my ledger, you have your ledger, but we have certain data points in each other's ledgers that we agree upon, that we share in a third place. I don't need to see all of your data, but I need to see certain pieces of data to agree on consensus in this state. So when you think about water, water is basically something that we account for. It goes into a big water resource system and then it's divvied up to urban water, agricultural water, mining water, environmental water. So everybody has to account for how much they're using in that water resource system. The challenge is, is that different legislation, different regulation, different departments, different organisations, different utilities, all have pieces of data that's related to that water resource system. And as a result, we can never tell in real time how much water is in the system, how much water is being used, how much water is being shared. Blockchain technology allows us to tokenize water resource systems for us to account of how much water is in the system and then we can ledger who has what according to which business rules which according to which legislation because we can codify all that sort of stuff and then what happens is that everybody can agree on its state so therefore we can reduce the cost associated with managing water because we're not putting intermediaries in the middle or building our own data systems trying to account for all of this. And to me, I think if we can fundamentally agree on how much water we have, and it's, then we can actually understand its value and its utility to ensure we're actually allocating it to its highest value use. Blockchain is providing us an independent system of record to hold that accounting system because we know that the problem is it's called Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> and water is, we know that Excel is the most dominant form of data. And it's not a data, it's not a relational database. And that's the interesting thing. It's just a spreadsheet. But people will hold data, organizations will hold data about their records in Excel spreadsheets. They're inalterable, they can be changed, they don't have a history. And as a result, we 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 don't understand as public servants. If we, when we need to do policy to actually make better decisions because we think we've got this amount of water, 
we can't verify it. So what we do is we go invest more money into building infrastructure, which we may not need. Because all we need to know is how do we better manage this asset? And that's what blockchain technology does. It's not about saying, once you've blockchained it, that's it, it's all over, we've got the solution. Blockchain is the last thing that happens. What you have to agree on in the first instance is governance, data governance, data interoperability, privacy, all those different conceptual things need to be discussed first before we actually start using this technology um, to enable um, those solutions to come to fruition. Yeah, so so let's let's take the example of a utility. So who is verifying the data? Let's say the utility says, you know, customer X used 2,000 gallons this day. How is that verified? I pose a question back to you, Dave. <laughs> think about this. Think about this. The utility who issues you your water actually bills you for that water. Right. And just think about that for a moment. There's no independent system of record to verify whether your usage has been accounted for correctly. And then when you get your bill and you kind of go, hang on, I didn't use all of this water, and you go back to your utility and go, ah, I didn't use all they go, prove it. That's right. You prove it. You prove it because our records say you have and you kind of go, but I don't have an independent umpire here. You you issue me the water and then you bill me the water. So how do I, so customers are really stuck. They kind of go, hang on here. Yeah. How do I actually we're all relying upon the accuracy of the meter. So who's exactly? So who's who? How, the how does blockchain that comes along and reads the meter? Yeah. How does blockchain <laughs> well, help help in that well, situation? Well, this is where we start to get down the the lens of Internet of Things and sensors and smart contracts and data. How data then we build the rules into how sensors are to read meters and things like that. But the challenge is is that you have different. You have some utilities that are really quite digitally engaged and understand the role of smart meters, and then you've got other utilities that aren't, that still use human beings to go and read, you know, write down the, the piece of paper, you know, you know this is your, you know, your, your meter for the day. So it requires a, a complete different mindset to say, how do we actually improve the customer experience? How do we get them to be confident in what we do? What do we need to do to give them to make them confident? And this is where you have to start rethinking the concepts of trust, transparency, and accountability. And that's when you have to go back and look at your business models. You look at your strategic plan. You look at how you build your workforce, how you look at your systems, because you have to keep on saying to yourself, how do we create trust? How do we provide transparency? How are we accountable? And that comes down to, the way we think about data, the way we put rules around data, how we govern it, and then how we share it across. And that's not necessarily the customer's responsibility to solve that problem, but um, it's something that, you know, you know, as I said, you know, going back to 20, 2012 when I was doing this way back, you know, 10 years ago, we just couldn't get consensus on, my, on smart meters. You know, it was just like, oh, that's just just could not get consensus on smart meters. And here we are in 2022 and we still don't have consensus on smart meters. Yeah. Uh, so so it's it still sounds like it's difficult 
for blockchain to work? Is it still difficult for blockchain to work in that scenario? Or well, it's it requires because blockchain is it is a system that sits outside of organisations. It's about because a lot of people say, oh, but I've you know all the costs and everything. But it's no, it's about saying we blockchain can interoperate with existing systems like ERPs and SAP and all that sort of stuff. But the problem is, is that majority of organisations work on Excel spreadsheets. And they just do. Mining companies, utility companies. So really before you even move to blockchain technology as a potential uh, mechanism to think about data, you've got to go back to the basics and look at your own organisation and say, how do we look at governance data? How do we understand security, privacy, consent? What are our systems doing? How do we actually from a philosophical perspective, work as an organisation, because blockchain is not going to solve bad data. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not going to do that. It's a, it has a very specific utility. And obviously I've been around for a long time in this industry and I've seen everything from, you know, the Bitcoin, Ethereum, the ICOs, the crypto, you know, everything now, NFTs, but blockchain is not for everything. I think that's what gets people quite, you know, not wanting to sort of go down and learn more about this tech because they see people saying, oh, blockchain is going to save the world. Well, no, it's not because technology is an enabler. If we want to save the world, humans have to come together and agree on a, on a few things. Then we look at how do we actually use technology that is quite smart to enable us to generate trust and accountability and transparency. You don't put the tech first put the problem first and this is where it's not about saying oh we'll become a complete blockchain organization and we'll start being a decentralized autonomous organization it's those little things about what systems are we using how are we accountable how do we disclose our data how do we share it it's those philosophical conversations that need to happen at the board level at the executive level level and enabling the people on the front end to be part of the conversation with, and it's no disrespect to middle managers out there who are probably listening, but you guys tend to be the problem because you don't like change. So you hold everything up because you don't want to change the way things work because you like just the way things are. But the problem is, is your customers are having a really awful time and your people on the front line are having an awful time. So it's a collective. Yeah, so it sounds like the infrastructure may not be there for the micro-level transactions, uh, but bigger picture stuff. So uh, I, I know that uh, NASDAQ launched uh, a water index in California. So how, how can blockchain help that water index? Yeah, look, it's, look this, is, this is really interesting because obviously the finals water um, was with wastewater um, California was they created the index way back in 2018. Um, and it was very quiet. Nobody paid much, you know, it got, it got on the way and they did this index, which was great because in Australia we have an index also created by a private company called Athia. But what was so fascinating was in September 2020, the CME group got involved and created a futures water index. And that's when everyone started paying attention because <laughs> then there was conversations to say you can't put you can't put a price on water in a futures market and treat it as a commodity because water is a human right. This is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. It has to be stopped. 
And so as a result, just by having this futures index, it has caused an enormous amount of discussion and 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 controversy. And I think in some ways that's great because it's time that we talked about this, about the price of water and how we value water. And for some people in one camp will say water should not be considered as a commodity, it's a human right, so we should just leave it the way it is. Well, the problem is, is that we have this thing called the tragedy of commons. And if we don't understand what is price or what is value, we have some people taking more than their fair share. And that's what the problem is. So when we really look at it, it comes down to the tragedy of commons because water is a shared public resource. And it needs to be managed in a way that has public interest at its heart, but we've also got to put it to economic use. So how do we get that balance? How does blockchain further the public interest? Well, it actually creates the ability to provide certain data points in real time. And being an Aussie, um, for some of your listeners, they may be aware of Australia's conditions, you know, with arid, with drought, with this, with this, but we have one of the most mature water markets in the world through the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, but it's complex, really complex. We have five different five different state governments, um, different registry systems that do not interoperate with each other, um, different levels of information technology in terms of systems. Some are still on whiteboards. Um, we've got our Commonwealth Government Act, we've got our State Government Acts, and then you've got subsequent acts that sit underneath that, and then you've got business rules associated with the schemes. And then within the schemes, there's certain rules around zones and who can trade with who and who can't trade with who, and then you have different water products. So water is not homogeneous, not fungible. It's it's non-fungible mostly of the time. So it puts a lot of pressure on farmers to when they need water, like if there's a dry year and they haven't got their entire allocation, they have to turn to markets to farm water. It's very hard to know whether whether you're buying water at the right price or whether you're selling water at the right price. So as a result, we have brokers and we have agents. And some of those brokers are also water holders of water rights. So they get inside information. And if I've got Australian listeners at the moment, I'm not being disrespectful. I'm just sort of uh, emulating what our many inquiries have found over the years in terms of the problems with water markets in Australia. So in Australia, water is not considered as a financial product. So it's not treated the same as something else like a gold or something like that. So we don't have requirements for brokers to be licensed. There's no registry. So as a result, we have a $28 billion asset and we don't know how much we have in this country. We don't know how much water is in the system at any point in time. We don't know who's trading with who. We don't know the last trade of water price. We have four different big providers that have their own proprietary systems that put, you know, spot markets together. Then you have your mid-tier and then you've got all your hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of brokers. And this puts a burden onto the farmer to know all of this stuff to ensure that they do a compliant trade, that the, anything that they do is going to meet the obligations under the, under the legislation. So what we found years ago was that the most important piece of information was absent from the market. It's price. Mm-hmm. So imagine when you go to eBay 
and you just see white screen with maybe, I don't know, shoes, but you don't know how much pay for those shoes. You don't know who's bought the, you know, what sort of how many are still left <laughs> to buy. Um, that's a sort of analogy that we see with water around the world is that those sort of those sort of details or that data is is withheld from the market and you need to pay people to find that information out for you. So as a result, farmers opt out of the markets. And as a result, water that may be surplus is not used. It's either evaporated or it sits there. So we've got all of this asset just sitting in systems because the markets are not not working for the grower. They work for the regulator and the private sector, but they're not actually working for the farm. So, so if I can summarize uh, our conversation today, it sounds it sounds like blockchain is really good for macro level transactions. The infrastructure still needs to be built out for the micro level transactions. So it's it's this it's this. Um, uh, evolution of infrastructure you talked about kind of as as blockchain grew from yeah. the, the 2008 white paper bitcoin yeah, white paper okay. uh also it sounds like blockchain can help make markets more efficient by providing a record of information making you know essentially democratizing the information so to speak correct correct so what we have is information asymmetry and opacity so when you have information asymmetry, like any market globally, when you have opacity information in symmetry, um, you get privileged information. And those privileged informations are held by the bigger players. So you have an inequality. So, so blockchain technology allows us to have democracy of information. There's five core pieces of information that a market needs, regardless of water, gold, any type of commodity. It needs to know that whoever is in that market has the authority to be in that market, that they've met some obligations, whether it be a licence or a regulation or a law. We also need to know that that person or that entity has the underlying property rights, irrefutable property rights to that asset, that they have the right to trade or sell that asset. So those two pieces of information are critical to give you confidence. Then you need to know what was the last traded price of water in my scheme show me is it in real time or is it 90 days old show me that i know the last traded price then i need to know what's the liquidity of the market what's the buy order depth what's the bid order you know what's the order book doing what's its what's its liquidity and then the last thing is history i need to know the history of those transactions so i understand what the past was so I can actually understand the future. If I have those five pieces of information, what we have is a much more efficient market that is cost less to participate in. It removes so many barriers for people to participate, but also gives a public window to the markets. And like in Australia, we get we get caught up in the whole idea that countries outside of Australia are buying up land because in Australia we we remove we split out the property and water, the land and the water rights they're separate now that was only about 20 or so years ago so you can buy property and then also get the water rights associated with it and so that's what happens so Canada is one of our biggest in Canada's superannuation funds are one of the biggest investors in water rights in our country 
because they see that if they are social, if they buy water rights up, they're actually investing in their in in the future. If they have water rights, you know, and we've all seen the Big Short. Yeah. What to? What happened at the end of the Big Short? Um, so water rights are hotly contested. And so with the whole idea of a water futures index, of course people are quite concerned. They said you can't put a price on water because it'll be manipulated. It'll be controlled by a few and will push the price up and therefore everybody will not be able to afford the water that actually needed and will start to see hoarding. The challenge, that's a valid, valid concern because you're dealing with centralised databases centralized systems whereby you do not have the ability to look at an audit log to verify that those transactions are meeting the obligations under legislation. So this is what blockchain technology allows us to do is it allows us to actually bring into a, into a, a system of record that cannot be changed that is providing information in real time so we can all agree on the value of water. And that is a very different proposition because it shifts the market from the regulator point of view or the, um, the government perspective and moves it and centres it around the farmer. And that's what we're doing in, in Northern Australia and in, in Australia is actually building markets from the bottom up using blockchain technology that are grower-led because they're the ones, because it's water is local, and growers and people who use this water know best on how to manage water. And that's what we're enabling here in Australia. Great. So, uh, Katrina, you have been incredible, uh, very enlightening. I have really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, before we say goodbye, uh, do you have any leave-behind messages? Sure. I guess for, for people who may be listening to this conversation and sort of thinking, how do I learn more? One of the things that I learned years and years ago is um, curiosity and openness is really important when we when we come across something new. Because it's very easy for us to say, oh, I don't want to know about that because it's that crypto thing or it's that thing or it's that thing. I th always ask people just to just go on, just peel that back and go and get yourself a fine information to learn from because we are seeing universities around the world building out blockchain uh, studies and courses. We've got governments around the world looking at regulation around central bank digital currencies. We are now seeing significant investment in this technology. So it's about looking beyond the, you know, the marketing that we see over the years and all the scams. Look beyond that because this underlying technology is something that's very, very important. So I ask people just to be open and yeah. learn. Yeah, yeah, terrific. So, Katrina, for those who want to find out more about you, about uh, the work you're doing, where can they go to get that information? Sure. So our website, civicledger.com, just .com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and we also have waterledger.com. So we have websites, we have our um, LinkedIn, and you can get all of our contact information on there. But um, we are starting to move ourselves into the US. We have great partners through AKIX in California and WEDEX in Utah. Uh, we're working with uh, Common Good Water and with Michael Burney. Um, so we're seeing really amazing changes um, globally around 
It's just that carbon's always been the thing. Everyone understands carbon. And when we think about carbon markets, everyone goes, sure, I understand how carbon markets work. But when it comes to what people go, no, I'm lost, I don't quite understand. It's tr- it's it's not water and carbon are, are slight, quite different, but each are using market mechanisms to ensure we understand value and price so we can create ways of better sharing this asset rather than depleting it. Awesome. Katrina, again, thank you so much for your time. You've been wonderful, and I have very much enjoyed speaking with you. It was very nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Well, I could have listened to Katrina for hours. She was phenomenal, and I really like her perspective that the tech comes second. We need to identify the problem first. I'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot more from Katrina and very soon at that. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast and click the first link that comes up. That's our home on the web. Uh, Again, Bluefield Research and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing agreement. And as part of that, Bluefield Research gives us a home on the web. So thank you so much. You can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page as well. Thank you again for tuning in and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give huge thanks again to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values podcast include Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard and Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, and Black and & Veatch. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And thank you again for your support and for listening. I can't tell you how good it feels to be part of the water industry with such caring and, of course, dedicated participants that I get to work with or interact with every day of the year. So thank you so much. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.